Due to the graphic nature of this haunted place, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes graphic descriptions of bodily harm, human sacrifice, and discussions of suicide. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Lena surveyed the ancient city of Shunantunich, the bright green grass and dark stone temples. The air held the faint scent of guava. Howler monkeys cooed in the distance. She was always happy to return to Belize, but this time she was especially glad. It had been a scary year. First, there were the fires in Australia, then the fires in the Amazon. Her mother had called her every day for months, worried about climate change or nuclear weapons. California was short on water again, and when Lena left for the airport, the Kincaid fire was going strong in Sonoma County. As her plane took off, little flecks of ash fell on the wings like snow. But at the dig site, all that chaos faded into the background. This place had been the site of a catastrophe once, but now it was just history. There was a comfort in knowing this ancient tragedy couldn't hurt her now. Lena made her way towards the site's central ruin, a massive pyramid called El Castillo. A small sign at the bottom of the stairs read that the ruins were closed for restorations. Some poor interns would spend the next two months standing there and turning away disappointed tourists. But then, Lena noticed a woman in a long white dress climbing the stairs. She was wearing a turquoise belt and an arm full of bracelets, probably purchased at the nearby souvenir stand. Lena called out to say that the building was closed, but the woman didn't turn around. Lena started up the stairs, finally catching up to her at the top of the pyramid. She yelled again that no one was allowed up here. Then, the woman turned. Suddenly, Lena heard screaming everywhere. She smelled smoke and the rusty odor of blood. The woman, she realized, was no tourist. She had pointed teeth and her pupils flickered like flames. She told Lena it was too late. They couldn't save anyone. She raised her arm and pointed to the plaza behind them. Lena turned. Bodies lay dead in the streets, and the once dark stone pyramids were bright gold. But now they were engulfed in flames. Lena started to scream. Welcome to Haunted Places, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm Greg Polson. Every Thursday, I take you to the scariest, eeriest, most haunted, real places on Earth. You can find all episodes of Haunted Places and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. And every Tuesday, make sure to check out Urban Legends. These special episodes of Haunted Places are available exclusively on Spotify. This week, Join me on a supernatural journey to the ancient Maya city of Shunantunich and discover why, to this day, it's haunted. Coming up, we'll get into the history of Shunantunich. Tucked away inside the countryside of modern-day Belize, lies one of the greatest standing ruins of the Maya civilization, 
Shunan Tunich's ancient name is unknown, but historians estimate that the structures of Shunan Tunich were built beginning in the 7th century CE. However, the land had been occupied by the Maya for much longer, as early as 1000 BCE. In those first centuries, it was just a small village. But at some point in the 7th century, it began to grow in size and power. The lords of the ancient Maya city built ball courts, palaces, and temples. But the city's crown jewel was the structure known as El Castillo, a 130-foot pyramid topped with shrines, offices, and a royal palace. Shunantunich was a thriving metropolis, the center of a powerful kingdom. Then, all of a sudden, it wasn't. The collapse of the Maya Empire was one of the most devastating and dramatic catastrophes in human history, but it didn't happen all at once. The collapse of the classic Maya civilization occurred not long after Shunantunich was built, around 800 CE. By the end of the 9th century, the region and its majestic monuments were almost totally deserted. In less than 200 years, the city's population had nearly vanished. Royal dynasties disappeared. Cities fell to ruin. The great pyramids of the Maya sat untouched for generations and were reclaimed by the jungle. But over the next millennium, the region was colonized by European settlers. By the 1800s, colonists began to take an interest in the ancient cities, and their expeditions uncovered a wealth of artifacts that were shipped away to European museums and auction houses. However, these pieces of history provided few clues as to what cataclysm destroyed the Maya cities. Something had caused the empire to crumble, yet to this day, we still don't know why. But for a lucky few, there are spirits in Shunantunich who will show them the keys to this ancient mystery, if only they would listen. Jacinto felt uneasy as he walked through the ancient temples. There were no real dangers here, no musket-wielding British soldiers on horseback. But there was a dense fog. It shrouded everything in mist, but Jacinto could still see the dark stones covered in moss and the snake-like vines that crept up the temple walls. Most days, Jacinto would walk the extra two and a half miles just to avoid the sight of it. But today, he didn't have the energy. He hadn't slept much last night, or any night in the past three months, not since his father died. Jacinto had borrowed money for a decent burial. He thought he'd be able to pay it back, but then the storm came. It devastated his crop of bananas. Now he barely had enough to pay the Englishmen who owned his land, and not a single shilling left for his wife and son. His wife was getting sicker every day. It was the same sickness that had taken his father, the same fever and bloody cough. And recently, his son Miguel had begun to cough too. Jacinto didn't know why he'd been spared. His wife said it was his Spanish blood. Maria said Europeans were immune to the diseases they brought to the Maya. And though Jacinto often considered himself a native, he'd been born on the peninsula. He was European after all. Jacinto had tried everything to raise money for a doctor. He'd begged from neighbors, tried fishing and hunting. 
but his neighbors were just as poor as he was. And even if he caught a fish or a deer, there was no one to sell it to. Jacinto was watching his wife and son die. He felt as if the world was falling apart, which might be why the temples made him feel so uneasy. Because that hopelessness must have been how the Maya felt long ago, that there was nothing they could do. Jacinto continued walking toward the center of the ancient city. In front of him, one moss-covered building towered above the others, a narrow strip of stone steps visible at its front. Something white flashed at the bottom of the steps. At first, Jacinto thought it was a bird. But as he came closer, he saw it was a woman. She wore a long white wheat peel and a belt of turquoise beads tied around her waist. Her arms were piled high with gold and silver bracelets, and the skin above her nose had been painted a vibrant red. Then she smiled at Jacinto, and he saw that her teeth were sharpened into fangs. She was strange, frightening, and incredibly beautiful. But the most astonishing thing about her was that she looked exactly like Maria. Without thinking, he called out his wife's name, but the woman didn't respond. She simply pointed toward the top of the pyramid and started up the stairs. Jacinto followed, taking care not to slip on the moss. He wasn't sure why he was going, but he felt compelled to, like he was in a trance. He reached the terrace just in time to see the woman disappear into one of the ancient doorways. Jacinto tried to pull himself away, thinking of his wife and son, sick at home. But something in his gut told him to go inside. Jacinto stepped through the stone doorway, his nose filling with a musky scent of incense. The chamber didn't look anything like the outside of the pyramid. The walls were painted with vibrant murals and large oil lamps hung lit from the ceiling. The whole room looked like Jacinto imagined it would have a thousand years ago. The woman was staring thoughtfully at an enormous jade disc hanging on the wall. It was the size of Jacinto himself, carved with elaborate symbols. It was probably worth a fortune. The woman turned to him and gave him a serious look. She said he could still change things. He asked what she meant. She pointed to the stone and said it wasn't too late to save them. He still had time. Jacinto eyed the jade disc. It probably weighed a hundred pounds, but he could still carry it. He asked the woman again what she meant, that he still had time, but she didn't answer. Instead, she paused, then stuck her finger in her mouth and touched her tongue. Suddenly, the room around him filled with smoke and sounds of destruction. The woman stood in the center of it. Flames ate away at her headdress, her clothing, and her skin. Her face grimaced with pain. For a moment, Jacinto stood terrified. Then smoke filled his lungs, and he began to cough. He had to get out of there. But the jade was too valuable to leave behind. He slipped around the woman, avoiding the flames, and lifted the disc off the wall. Then he ran, rolling it onto the terrace outside. As soon as he crossed the threshold, it was all gone. The smoke, the screams, even the room itself. Everything was rubble again. 
except the jade disc. He looked down at it and laughed, tears springing to his eyes. He would sell the jade disc as soon as he could and never think about it again. This stone, this temple, it was all cursed. Something terrible had ended that world, but Jacinto still had time to save his own. Roughly translated from the Yucatec Mayan language, Shunan Tunich means stone woman. The name is related to a popular legend that rose up around the site during the 1800s. The story is that a man from the nearby village of San Jose Sacuts was passing through the ruins when he caught sight of a beautiful Maya woman standing on the stairs of El Castillo. She wore a white weepil, a traditional tunic-like dress that Maya women have been wearing for centuries. She disappeared into a cavern, and the man ran home to tell the villagers what he'd seen. But when they returned with the priest, there was no trace of her, and even the entrance to the cave was gone. Some of the villagers suggested that what the man had seen was just a carving of a woman. Thus the site's name, Stone Woman, was born. That could have been the end of the story, but over the years, there continued to be sightings of the mysterious woman in white around El Castillo. Villagers would see her ascend the stairs, then disappear into a cave or through a doorway. Over time, rumors cropped up about a spirit that had lingered in Shunantunich, an ancient Maya queen who'd been sacrificed there. But her history, or what she wanted, had yet to be uncovered. Coming up, a group of Spanish priests meet the Stone Maiden's wrath. You discover their practices, seek their advice, and let yourself become more vulnerable than ever before. They have the ability to heal what doctors can't, or so they say. Listeners, be sure to check out the special four-part series on Miracle Healers, airing right now on Cults. Meet figures from around the world who claimed powers and pushed remedies, but harbored more sinister intentions. You don't want to miss it. And if you're looking for more episodes on the most radical and deadly people in history, tune into Cults every Tuesday as we explore the background and psychology behind the world's most manipulative and mysterious groups. From Jim Jones and the People's Temple to Charles Manson and the Manson family to Keith Raniere and Nexium, you'll uncover the unscrupulous methods used to turn bright-eyed recruits into die-hard believers. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast Cults, free on Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Now back to the story. Long before Belize was an independent country, those who survived the Maya Empire's collapse dispersed. They migrated into what is now southern Mexico, other parts of the Yucatan Peninsula, and present-day Guatemala and Honduras. There, the Maya built new urban centers, a few of which even rivaled the impressive structures of their original cities. But those new metropolises were few and far between. The grand Maya Empire was gone, and it would never come back. The first Spanish conquistadors arrived in Mesoamerica, or the so-called New World, in the early 1500s. At the time, the Aztec were the dominant group, 
with a large population, magnificent cities, and wealth. The people living in Mesoamerica were diverse, speaking a variety of languages. Some of the descendants of the ancient Maya lived in small villages scattered across Mexico and Central America. Nearly all of their classical cities had been reclaimed by the jungle, and most were completely abandoned. But figures from the past still remained. Some walked alone over the stone terraces and through the rooms of empty palaces, witnesses to a violent history, waiting for the past to repeat itself yet again. Napuk stopped his horse when he reached a limestone ridge. He sat down in the shade of an enormous cacao tree and waited for the three Spanish friars to catch up with him. It had taken them and their armed men three weeks to get here from Chuntuki. Napuk could have made the journey in five days if he'd been traveling alone. But of course, he wouldn't have stopped at every village to terrorize people. The friars called it conversion. They would ride into a village and start by killing the shamans. Then they'd tear down the temples. Napuk had observed that Padre Abendano especially enjoyed destroying statues. But he was a short, fat man, and he looked ridiculous trying to knock the head off of a six-foot-tall limestone carving. Really, all the priests could have been laughable if they didn't have horses and guns and disease. Ten years ago, the Spanish would have been met by Chuntuki warriors, but there were few left since the plague. Nearly half of Napuk's village had been wiped out from it. First, the fever and vomiting, then rotting pustules that covered the skin. Those who remained no longer had the spirit to fight. Napuk had been a child during the worst of the epidemic. His father was the first to fall ill, and his mother sent him to live with his aunt. When he returned, his father's face was covered in thick scars, and his mother was dead. One day, the priests asked for a guide to take them into the distant jungles. Napuk had never left his village, but when he saw his father step forward, he had to do something. He volunteered to go instead, and promised the priests he would take them to a place called the Kingdom of Itza. Napuk had never heard of the Kingdom of Itza, but Padre Avendano didn't need to know that. So, Napuk led the priests and their soldiers into the jungle, hoping to get them far away from anyone he knew, even if it meant he might never come home. A light rain had begun by the time the priests caught up to Napuk. When they were all together, Napuk led them up the side of the ridge. He wasn't sure exactly where he was going but they were deep in the jungle now. Then, suddenly, a magnificent city rose up before him with temples bigger than any building he had ever seen. There were ball courts, palaces, and huge stone sculptures scattered around the plaza. He recognized some. Chuck the rain god loomed above the cracked remains of an old cistern. He had an ax in his hand and the scales covering his body were still painted blue but other statues Napuk didn't recognize at all. A hunched, skeletal figure lay in the grass, and an enormous feathered serpent with the head of a man rose up from one of the pyramids. Even the priests seemed awed by the sudden discovery. 
One asked Napook if this was the kingdom of pizza. He nodded dumbly, just as awestruck as the rest of them. But he thought perhaps this was one of the cities he'd heard stories about as a child. He'd always believed they were just legends, mythical tales of great kings who'd built magnificent cities of painted stone. But here it was, as real as anything. Most of the buildings were blackened and charred from some fire long ago. But here and there, Napu could still see the bright swaths of color from a once glorious kingdom. He climbed off his horse and wandered about the empty city. Even with the priests exploring the site behind him, and Padre Abendano clumsily collecting some of the smaller sculptures, the place was so empty. Napuk couldn't look at the charred buildings and toppled statues without wondering what had happened to the people who once lived there. Soon, he felt himself drawn toward one pyramid in particular. It loomed above the city like some terrible watchtower. Napuk couldn't stop staring at it. He stared for so long that eventually he thought he saw a woman walking on one of the lower terraces. Napuk blinked, but still she was there. The woman wore a white weepeel and a magnificent headdress. She looked at Napuk, and his chest tightened. Her face was painted red, and she had fang-like teeth. Her expression was urgent as she made her way up the steps. She was beautiful and deeply unsettling. Burning with curiosity, Napuk followed her. At the top of the steps, she disappeared into one of the pyramid's doorways. Napuk hurried after her, but before he could go through the entrance, he heard a shout from the plaza below. Padre Avendano had spotted him and was yelling for him to stay where he was. Napuk looked at the Spaniards and then back to the door. The priests were angry. But something about the woman's expression had felt so urgent. He felt like he needed to follow her. And the longer he waited, the more likely it was that he'd lose her completely. He took a deep breath. And with the priest still shouting behind him, Napuk stepped through the doorway. He entered a dimly lit room filled with thick white smoke. The woman in white was lying on the floor. Only now, she looked different. She wasn't wearing her headdress anymore, and she looked pale and weak. She opened her mouth to speak, and blood spilled past her lips. Napuk rushed toward her, and she pointed to a heavy, lidded chest in the corner. Then she turned to him and finally spoke. She said that he could still save himself. Napuk heard voices behind him and spun around. The three priests were standing at the doorway. When Napuk looked back to the woman, she was gone. Even the smoke had disappeared. He saw then that he was standing in some kind of an altar room. An enormous jade disc hung on one of the walls, and gold objects lay on a table, looking slightly charred. Old stone pillars held up the roof overhead. One of the priests asked what Napuk was doing, but Padre Avendano answered that it was obvious. He was trying to keep them from finding riches objects that were the divine right of the church to possess. One of the priests grabbed Napuk by the hair and asked if that was true. Napuk tried to protest, but the man simply tossed him into the corner. They said they would deal with him in a minute. The priest turned toward the items on the table. Padre Avendano said that the gold could be melted down. For the jade disc, 
It would take some work to destroy the idolatry scribbled across it. But when they did, it would be worth a fortune. The priests started arguing when suddenly the room began to tremble. The priests were too involved in their squabble to notice, but Napook looked around frantically for an exit. That was when he saw her again. The woman in white was standing right next to the priests, but they didn't see her. She looked at Napook and pointed toward the chest again. She then mouthed something to him. Save yourself. Napook's heart was pounding. He wondered if she was somehow doing this. But even if she was, he had no choice but to trust her. The shaking was getting worse. He crept behind the priests and pulled at the stone lid of the chest with everything he had. It moved just enough for him to climb in and slide it shut. Locked inside, Napook could hear the ceiling beams cracking in half. The priests screamed. The floor shook. There was a crash, then another, then another. Napook waited until well after the last beam had collapsed before climbing out of the chest. He squinted through the dusty air to survey the damage. Where the priests had been was now a pile of rocks. Napook looked closer to see a bloody hand stretching out from beneath the rubble. The hand twitched, still slightly alive. As the dust settled, Napook saw the woman kneeling beside the stones. Her mouth was no longer full of blood, but her eyes glowed like flames. In a thunderous voice, she screamed a single word, flee. Napook turned and ran. While ancient Maya history remains murky, it's clear what caused devastation to Mesoamerica's native populations from the 16th century on. Spanish conquistadors brought violence to their villages and diseases to their people. Catholic priests burned sacred texts, smashed religious sculptures, and forcibly converted native people to Christianity. Their culture was destroyed. One of these priests was a friar named Andres de Avendaño, who in 1695 made his way from the formerly Maya village of Tipu toward a place in the Yucatan Peninsula called the Kingdom of Itza. The Itza were a group of Maya that had built a kingdom in the region. In his account of the journey, Avin Daniel mentions several temples and cities where he stopped to speak with native people and try to convert them. He describes one place as a city of impressive pyramids built atop a stone ridge. He called it Tan Shuluk Mul, or temples on a great height. Avin Daniel wrote that the buildings were so impressive that they could not have been built by human hands. They must have been built by the devil himself. Coming up, we'll hear the Stone Maiden's tragic story. Now back to the story. In 2016, more than a thousand years after the collapse of the Maya Empire, archaeologists at Shunantunich uncovered one of the largest tombs ever found in Belize. Inside were the remains of an adult male, along with hieroglyphic panels created by a Maya royal family, often referred to as the Snake Dynasty. 
At certain points in the Maya classical period, members of the Snake Dynasty ruled the nearby cities of Naranjo and Caracol, so it's likely that Shunan Tunich's rulers were of the same lineage. Scholars believe that Shunan Tunich was allied with the city of Naranjo, and that for a long time, Shunan Tunich was one of the few Maya sites to remain standing. It was a lone beacon of hope in the midst of a devastated wasteland. But eventually, its light would be extinguished. Shunan Tunich would fall too. The Lady Bot's Eck watched her twin sister's blue and green headdress bob up and down at the front of their father's funerary procession. When they were children, they used to sneak into their father's chambers to marvel at that headdress. They would run their fingers over its magnificent feathers, and occasionally Ishna Eck would even try it on. Ishna Eck was older by an hour, but it was always hard to imagine her as queen. She'd always been a shy child frightened of their tyrannical father. She was scared of his wrath, but also of disappointing him, or more importantly, failing the dynasty of the snake. But now, with their father dead, Ishna was forced to hide her fear under the headdress. Of course, a lot had changed in the last 15 years. When Lady Bots and Ishna were children, the view from Shunan Tunich was beautiful. On one side of the city, cornfields spread out as far as the eye could see. On the other side, dense jungle shaded the banks of the river. Now, those same cornfields were thinning like an old man's hair, and the trees around the river were twisted and small. Straw huts had sprung up along the edges of the city, belonging to refugees from neighboring cities. They had come here because there was still water, not in the cisterns or the reservoirs. Those had dried up long ago but the river still ran. The river would always run, Lady Bots hoped, but she was worried as some of the banks were starting to dry out. She had to speak to her sister. The procession turned and headed for a building covered in fresh paint. Their father had given his life for that building. He called it a sacred sacrifice. He'd always said that royal blood was the most powerful sacrifice of all. Of course, he hadn't really made any sort of sacrifice. He'd been attacking what was left of Yelaine when he was slain in battle. They hadn't needed to rob the rotting corpse of their sister's city, but her father wanted more men to finish his tomb. He wanted captives, and one of those captives had slit his throat. Ten men lowered their father's body into his tomb. Then four priests closed the heavy stone door. Lord Kanula Chao was locked away forever. His eldest daughter, by one hour, left to rule. After the funeral, priests and courtiers surrounded their new queen, demanding her attention. Lady Bots watched patiently as her sister struggled to address each of her subjects. Then, finally, she caught Ishna's eye. Lady Bots beckoned to her and led her sister to a room at the top of the pyramid. Lady Bots lit two hanging oil lamps as her twin sat on an old stone chest. Then she told Ishna she had something important to show her and went to retrieve an astronomical table. When she returned, she pointed to the jade calendar hanging on the wall. Do you see this? She asked her sister. 
If they didn't do something soon, things might get very bad. Shunantunich could go the way of the other cities. The signs were clear. But if they acted now, it wouldn't be too late to change things. Something catastrophic was coming. Her sister asked what kind of catastrophe, but Lady Botts didn't know. All she knew for sure was that they needed to start rationing water. They needed to make more sacrifices, but not captive enemies. She should let all her father's workers go. They needed real sacrifices, the blood of noblemen. Ishna sighed and said it had been an exhausting day. They could save all this for tomorrow. Lady Botts nodded. Of course. She loved her sister, and she hadn't meant to upset her. Ishna smiled. Then she left. Lady Botts turned back to her astronomical charts. She tried to ignore the gnawing dread growing in her stomach, to find any sign in the jade that told her she was wrong. But there was no denying a terrible change was coming. Weeks passed, and though Lady Botts tried to meet with her sister again, Ishna made one excuse after another. The people wouldn't submit to water rationing. There were no nobles worth sacrificing. Two years went by, and nothing changed. Lady Botts withdrew from her sister, and instead focused on finding answers herself. She studied the stars and the charts. She was determined to come up with the perfect solution, something that would be impossible for her sister to refuse. But with every year that passed, the river got smaller, and the water got dirtier. People began to get sick. The crops died off, and those who were not sick were starving. But still, Queen Ishna did nothing. She distributed the food in the reserves and told people that any day now it would rain again. The crops would come back, and the city would thrive. And all the while, Lady Botts waited patiently until the days the stars would align. The day they'd give her the answer she was so desperately searching for. Exactly seven years after her father's funeral, that day came. That morning, Lady Botts entered the calendar room, just as she had done hundreds of times before, and sat down at the low stone table. She hadn't eaten in three days and was already feeling boozy, but she knew what she had to do. She set a bowl full of paper on the surface, then picked up a thin stingray spine and attached it to a knotted rope. Then she took a deep breath. She was terrified, but resolute. This had to be done. She needed her answer. Lady Botts held up the spine and drove it through her tongue. The pain was horrific. Blood poured from her mouth and into the bowl below. She closed her eyes and began to pull, gliding the rope through the hole in her tongue. It was excruciating. Her eyes watered, and for a second, she thought she would lose consciousness. But finally, she pulled the rope all the way out and held her bleeding tongue over the bowl. Lady Botts held a candle up to the papers in the bowl, there was so much blood that it took a moment for the papers to catch. But eventually, the flames sprang to life, and the room filled with smoke. A large snake made out of mist climbed out of the bowl. It opened its jaws and revealed her father's face. 
He spoke in a wild, high-pitched voice. He said that her sister was wrong. The rains would not come back. The land could not be healed. Instead, the people would rise up and burn the city to the ground. There was only one way out. Lady Bot swallowed, her mouth still filled with blood. She could feel her voice tremble as she asked what they should do. Her father's eyes went red, his face twisting into a terrifying grimace. He screamed one word. Flee! Lady Botts fell to the floor. When Lady Botts woke, she saw Ishna leaning over her. She seized her sister's arm and told her about their father's prophecy. Ishna's face went pale. She finally agreed they had to do something and suggested rationing water. Or better yet, they could dam the river. Lady Botts stared at her in disbelief. It was too late for those things. It was too late to do anything but leave. She clutched Ishna's arm and begged her to see reason. Lady Botts then pointed to the chest in the corner where the astronomy charts were kept. Ishna could check them for herself. She could still save the two of them. She could still save herself. Ishna backed away from her. She said this was their home. Their family had ruled here for 300 years. She would not be the last of the Snake Dynasty. Lady Botts felt like crying. She said again that her sister could save herself, but Ishna only gave her a burning stare. She told Lady Botts that she should leave and never come back. Lady Botts ran out of the temple, stumbling down the steps and into the city. It was empty. The marketplaces and gardens, the traders and merchants, they were all gone. A few people lay sick and moaning in the dusty streets. This place wasn't their home anymore. It was a death trap. The only others remaining were the workers on her father's funerary pyramid. Ishna had never stopped work on the building. She was still afraid of what her father would think, even years after his death. Her sister's fear and her father's pride had doomed the city. Lady Botts wished she could burn the tomb to the ground. Suddenly, she had an idea. If her sister would not leave, then Lady Botts would force her out. She waited until nightfall, then crept quietly to the Great Pyramid. There, she soaked its stucco with oil, and then lit it aflame. She then climbed down to the central plaza and took a seat, ready to watch her exodus. The flames consumed the temple. Soon, a group of people climbed up the front steps of the pyramid, trying to beat back the small inferno. One man's shirt caught fire. He tore it off and flung it aside, but it landed in a patch of dry grass, and the flames spread. Lady Bots watched as the Great Pyramid was consumed by fire. Priests and courtiers poured down the front steps, but Ishna was not among them. Lady Bots paced back and forth, where was her sister? She should have made it down by now. Suddenly, Lady Botts had a terrible thought. What if her sister wasn't coming down? What if she was trapped, or worse? Maybe she was still too afraid to leave. Lady Botts ran up the front steps. She had to find Ishna. Her twin would not die because of her. But as Lady Botts approached the top of the pyramid, 
she saw that the other staircase was on fire. There was now only one way out. She rounded the landing and saw Ishna. Hot gusts of wind blew back the feathers of her headdress. Flecks of black ash landed on her white weep heel. Lady Bots held out her hand. She begged Ishna to come down with her. They could still escape. They could flee. Ishna shook her head. Her eyes shone red in the light of the flames. She told her sister it was too late. They couldn't save anyone. Not anymore. Ishna pointed to the chaos below her. She said that Lady Bots had been right. That she'd been afraid of this destruction, so she'd chosen denial. She'd failed her people and her sister. But she wouldn't do it again. She held out a hand to Lady Bots and reminded her that royal blood was the best sacrifice. They would ensure that no Maya suffered in this place ever again. Lady Bots could already feel the heat from the growing blaze. It was too much. But then she looked at her sister, and a calm came over her. This wouldn't be an easy death, but she was finally doing what she'd always wanted, protecting her people. She took her sister's hand, and they walked together into the flame. We may never know exactly what brought about the downfall of the Maya Empire, but there are some pieces of the puzzle that researchers have managed to put together. In the 1990s, climate scientists and archaeologists uncovered evidence of a century-long drought in Central America. It's believed that it began right around the beginning of the Maya collapse. And because most Maya cities did not have access to lakes or rivers, they relied on rainwater to fill reservoirs and cisterns. Without rain, the cities were doomed. Drought led to famine, soil erosion, deforestation, and civil unrest, issues that the modern world is becoming all too familiar with. But for Shunan Tunich, they were a death knell. The population died off or relocated to other regions, and the city's elegant painted facades were destroyed. Over time, foliage grew over the temples, and stories of the great civilization were lost. Only the stone lady remained, wandering the ancient city. Sometimes she is said to wear a traditional weepil, sometimes just a long white dress. She's described as either beautiful or a ghastly specter with flaming eyes. The descriptions vary just enough that it would seem as if there is more than one spirit haunting the ruins of Shunan Tunich, though they might be related. The ancient Maya believed in repeating cycles, they knew the world had ended before, and someday it would end again. So they spent countless hours poring over calendars and astronomical charts, trying to figure out what that end would look like. Maybe the stone ladies of Shunan Tunich figured it out, and maybe they still know. So there they remain, repeating their knowledge to those who will listen. Because if history is a cycle, we must look to the past for warnings and make changes before it's too late. Thanks again for tuning into Haunted Places. We'll be back on Thursday with a new episode. And don't forget to come back on Tuesday for our Urban Legends series, available only on Spotify. 
You can find more episodes of Haunted Places and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. I'll see you next time. Haunted Places is a Spotify original from ParCast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Kenny Hobbs. With production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Haunted Places was written by Zoe Luisa Lewis. With writing assistance by Alex Garland. Fact-checking by Claire Cronin and research by Adriana Gomez. I'm Greg Polson.